Good day and welcome to the Cincy Slangin' Bearcat Podcast. I'm Coomer, joined as always by Hummer. Hummer, what's up, buddy? Coomer, you already know it is a great day to be a Cincinnati Bearcat basketball fan, football fan, and if you're a fan of the Royals, it is not a great day for you. But we'll leave that for the end of the podcast. Or maybe it is a great day. I mean, we are we are definitely going to get into some Royals talk. This podcast episode was initially postponed because of Oprah's bombshell interview with Harry and Meghan. Hummer and I certainly intend on talking about that. <laughs> As I say it out loud, I can't even keep a straight face. Well, I, call, I called um, you and I was like, do you do you care? Like, <laughs> can we can we not record tonight? Like, I really want to watch it. And you're like, you kind of pause for a second and you're like, what is the big deal about like? Just, I don't know. Julia's upside excited about it. I kind of want to watch. I want to see what the, I want to see what the drama is about. It did not disappoint. It didn't, and, and we'll get into that toward the end of the episode. Um, it's also a great day to be a women's basketball fan for the Cincinnati Bearcats, uh, who are riding, as of the recording of this podcast, a four-game winning streak. They are playing Central Florida in the American Athletic Tournament right now. We are in the fourth quarter. If you want to timestamp when we're talking about this, there are about seven minutes left in the fourth quarter. Bearcats are down nine. We'll see if they could do the unthinkable and pull off the upset here to continue uh, keeping their hopes alive for making the NCAA tournament. But Hummer, I do want to kick things off. It's been a few days since we talked. We don't need to go into it in too much depth, but the Cincinnati Bearcats men's basketball team did finish their regular season. Uh, at East Carolina with a victory, 82-69. A, a, a good victory, a much-needed victory, and it allowed the Bearcats, John Brandon and the Bearcats, to finish year two with a 10-10, and 10, 500 record in the regular season. What are your What were your big takeaways from this game? National Coach of the Year award right there. Uh, <laughs> that's that's what we're calling for, National Coach of the Year award. No, I don't, I don't mean to be serious. This was a great game. This was a good win, a good way to end the season. It's bringing great positive momentum heading into SMU, who hasn't played since February 8th, and we'll get into that. But what I liked about this game is – let's just go through it. I'll, I'll save the best for last because I know you want to tackle this player individually himself, but Mason Madsen, 19, 5 from 9 from three-point land. Keith Williams, 16, two for four from three-point land. Micah Adams-Woods, 12, two from five. And the man, the myth, the legend, the hometown hero, hometown kid, Jeremiah Davenport, 19 points. Yeah, and you didn't mention, I mean, he, he didn't light up the scoreboard, but even Tari Eason with a productive 7.7 boards, a, a couple of ridiculous dunks in that game, one of which was tossed up by Mason Madsen. Just obscene oh athleticism. And, you know, a defensive presence, which is just, it's what we've been raving about all season with him with the three steals and the box score says one block. I'm fairly certain we saw more than one block in that game, but honestly, what's I, happened, think we, I think, the, I think there's a uh, petition out there to have it officially raised to four. I think that's what I was seeing. That's what I was reading. Momster reached out to the American athletic conference. Um, I don't know if it was the media guys or the commissioner, but she is petitioning for four. You know what? I'll go for it. He had four, four blocks, unofficial blocks, uh, but one thing that that you're, I think you're also missing too. You're talking about the the awesome pass from Mason to Tari on the on the uh, the alley oop. These guys seem like the younger guys seem to have a little bit of a chemistry and a connection, and when they're out on the court, they seem to, to really play well. And when I'm looking at the box score and I'm seeing that, I'm seeing the core of this team playing really well right now. So it is a shame that we do have David DeJulius opt out. It is a shame that we have Zach Harvey opt out because now that we're, we're, we're playing well in a, in one sense, but we don't have the depth that's probably, that is going to be required to make any kind of run in the upcoming tournament. So they opt out, but it's sort of, it's sort of been a blessing in some ways. And I think that's what we should, we should sort of hash hash out here. Basically when David DeJulius opted out, it left the team with eight scholarship players and with Mike Saunders Jr. struggling with an ankle injury, he didn't even play against East Carolina. That was down to seven. But if even with Mike Mike playing, everyone has very clear and defined roles on this team because they have to, because the coach has to play somebody. 
And there's only really eight scholarship players to choose from at this point. So going into every game, there's not going to be any sort of surprise or change or, or there's not going to be the roller coaster ride of what kind of minutes am I getting on a game to game basis. And so I think there is something too with David DeJulius opting out. Mike Saunders now knows, Hey, I'm, I'm the de facto point guard of this team. And when he doesn't play Micah Adams woods knows that. And, and with Mason Madsen, he knows, well, okay, I'm definitely going to be leaned on here in in a bigger role off the bench to be a scoring punch. And, and, you know, Tari Eason, his minutes are, are fluctuating much less now, assuming that he stays out of foul trouble. So I think there is something to the defined roles and the, just the natural, the natural, uh, umph that comes from guys rallying around each other because it, it feels like us against the world, right? We have all these guys who have kind of opted out the season. Gabe's gone, Rap's gone, uh, DeJulius, Harvey. It's it's sort of like, look, it's us against the world. I feel like there's guys who have literally posted such terminology on, on social media platforms like Instagram, and we're seeing the guys kind of really compete hard, play hard, and in a lot of ways the young guys are showing out. Like if there's one, the biggest positive thing about this basketball program right now is not necessarily what we're seeing from the coaching staff. It's what we're seeing from the young talent that they've brought in. And, and you spoke about it, but you know, multiple players in this East Carolina game showed out and it was, it's the younger generation. That's who it is. It's the future. Yeah. And you can't, you can't be happier to see that because, you know, I know we're going to be wrapping up the season you know what? We don't know when we're going to wrap up the season. Let's not get, let's not go dark immediately, but at some point in the next few weeks, we're going to, we're going to break down the season. We're going to be looking at what's coming up next season. You know what? We already know that we're going to have to go to the transfer portal to find players. So we're going to have to evaluate what the team needs in terms of death and, and replacement for, for players that are going to be departing. But when you're looking at the core group of players, you, you really, it does, there is some excitement to be had. I think the question is going to be with these guys is who has their Jeremiah Davenport S soft uh, breakout sophomore year. And, you know, this, I think, I think this is what you wanted to hit on, but is Jeremiah Davenport, like what is the ceiling for, because we know there's usually, if you're having a breakout college career, it happens between your sophomore and junior year. That's that's when you that's when your game really gets elevated. You've had two years of working with basically what amounts to a professional weightlift weight. You know, uh, uh, what am I trying to say there? Um, the off season training, right? Like off season with- training, professional style off season training. You're getting you're getting told what to eat. You're you're go- you're being told what to do in the gym. You're you're bulking up. You're getting stronger and faster. You're you're getting acclim- You're more than acclimated to the system. So I think next year. And even even the rest of the season, I think it's really dependent on how Jeremiah Davenport plays. I think the Bearcats go pretty much as Jeremiah Davenport goes. Absolutely. I, I think we need to really spend some significant time here talking about Jeremiah Davenport and the season that he just put together. And it's a perfect time now because we wrapped up wrapped up the 20 games. The, se- the regular season is finished. And there's pretty much no doubt at this point who the MVP of this team was this season. And that was Jeremiah Davenport. <laughs> Our Over- odd man out, your MVP, <laughs> Jeremiah Davenport. <laughs> Look, uh, you're right. Can't let it, us, we can't let us forget that. We can't let us forget that. <laughs> <laughs> Lean into the wrongness. Lean into the discomfort of being so ridiculously wrong about what his role would be on the team this season. And and look, we kind of had like there was some hedging that went on about, well, here's a world where we could use a six, seven wing and he'd give us some energy and he'd give us, um, you know, potentially some size on defensively being able to match up in different ways. He exceeded any potential expectation anybody had about this guy. Like there's there's just nobody out there that came into this season thinking he's going to be the best player on this Bearcats team this season. That is not something that we saw on the cards and it sort of has caused me to completely reevaluate what his long-term upside is with the Bearcats. Um, I mean, look at it year over year. Last year, he he averaged seven minutes a game. He shot 33% from the field, 14% from three and, you know, negligible stats outside of that two points a game this season. Those minutes went up to 28 minutes a game, 46% shooting, 36% from three, 
free throw percentage stayed level at 77, 76, 77%, but five rebounds, two assists and, and turnovers. You know, he, he actually managed to curb his turnovers this year and his turnover rate has dropped despite being more involved and being more heavily leaned on. And that's just the stats. When you watch him play, his game is continually evolving. He's finding new ways to impact the game offensively. There's work to be done defensively. But I think the conversation I really want to have with you is, like, what what is the new expectation for Jeremiah? Like, is there another level? And what does that level look like? And is he not just a supporting guy anymore? It feels like he's not. It feels like we're heading into the direction of, can Jeremiah Davenport become the primary, quote-unquote, guy that this team is built around offensively moving forward. I'd say he would be a primary person that you do do that with. I don't, I think the way this team is built though, and the way they play that you're going to see, you're going to see the evolution of Jeremiah's game is something that you pointed out specifically, which is the element where he is now creating for others. That, that is what's going to make him so important is that he now has this new ability to create for others Man, I'm I'm on the spot here, man. Goomer can't hear this, so he's gonna have to edit this out. And he he walked away from the chair and was like, just just keep going, just just roll, just roll with it. Um, so no, talking with talking about Jeremiah Davenport, I think that's the key is that you're looking at him being able to create for others, and that's what's going to be so impactful going forward is when you see him kicking, driving the lane, and then finding an, an open Mason Madsen for the three because we know that's our that's our stop, that's our our knockdown shooter is Mason Madsen. So. I, I think his role in the team is going to to increase. I think it's going to increase not in the way, say, Cumberland's did, where you know the Bearcats had to have the ball in Cumberland's hand, or we weren't winning last year. That was very clear. I don't think that's going to be the case with Jeremiah. I think he's gonna he has this freedom to be creative. He has this this kind of ability because of the teammates that surround him and their abilities. It allows him to do more than just play one role. So I'm curious to see if next year we see him kind of shift around on the court to, and playing different spots, depending on who is, who are the personnel packages, you know, are we having foul trouble with our point guards? Is that something where Jeremiah Davenport, you know, just the everything man can step in and, and take role on the point, you know, can Jeremiah play, play the four? I don't think we'll ever need to see him play the five, uh, but he has, he has the height to do that too. Uh, so I'm really curious to see, I think the element of his game that, that just keeps getting better is that ability to create for others. Like that's, that's the element that we've seen really take off over the last four or five games is his ability to drive the lane and kick, kick out to an open shooter, make that extra pass because that extra pass is where we get the best offense. It's scary. Like to me, the American athletic conference should be scared of what Jeremiah Davenport could potentially turn into his usage rate technically on a year over year basis is has gone down. It went from 19.9 his freshman year to 19.3% his sophomore year. Now, clearly he's more involved in terms of the number of minutes he's playing, but that just means in terms of how possessions are ending on a rate basis, he still is maintaining the same level of usage that he did last season. And what what you're what you hit on is is key. He's proving to be a guy who can develop and add skills in real time. It's not Jeremiah came in his sophomore year, a better player, a better shooter. And now we have this finished product his sophomore year, and we'll see what he can turn into his junior year throughout and during his sophomore season. He was adding skills and basically expanding the bag, the skill set, the tools he had at at his disposal went up significantly. Like you mentioned, being able to handle the ball more, being able to create for teammates, being able to uh, become a guy who can draw the defense and kick out to an open Mason Madsen for a three, and then being able to create off the dribble for your own shot. That's the most exciting thing about him because he's someone who's not just able to work on the skills and clearly has a dedication to his craft and aspirations to be an NBA player. And he said so uh, in the in the article by KJ Singleton, uh, who posted a, a cool a cool piece about the Davenport family and how competitive they are with each other. This is a guy who's dedicated to becoming the best possible basketball player he can. And his ability to learn on the fly and, and grow means that we might have a, a tremendous, tremendous player on our hands his junior and season, senior seasons. 
and it, it kind of raises the bar. If we have all the concerns me and you have about this team move, moving in, into the future, about the coaching staff, about the lack of recruits, about our reliance on the transfer portal, you can overcome that if you have a guy like Jeremiah Davenport taking a ridiculous leap again. So I think that's something to really keep our eye on is can the progress, can this learning curve continue at the same rate? Because it's ridiculous right now. And if it does, Jeremiah Davenport unlocks a lot of potential options for the Bearcats. Here's what Jeremiah Davenport is reminding me of, and, and you might kill me for this. He, he reminds me of like, basically he doesn't remind me I'm seeing, this is what we wanted Keith Williams to become. I mean, you want every player to like get the better, tool, I'm, right? Well, I'm saying like, I'm not saying that, like the tool sets, when you're looking at what they did on the court last year, I still, you kind of saw like, all right, he's like almost like a, a Keith Williams. He's energetic. He's athletic. He's lengthy. He gets up and down. He has, you know, and he's fairly athletic. And then you see him develop and you want to see him get better. And then you kind of see Keith Williams hit that plateau where you see, you just saw Jeremiah Davenport blow through it. Like this year we saw Jeremiah Davenport kind of blow through expectations and the way we were expecting to see Keith Williams blow through expectations this year. Cause Keith Williams by all means had a, had a good season this year, but I'm not going to say he was leaps and bounds better than what he, what he accomplished last year. No, he wasn't like Keith Williams showed the challenge there is in moving from a 20% usage player to a 30% usage player. And that it's not linear in terms of predicting its success. And that's the wild card for Jeremiah. I don't know if when if he goes to being a 28, 29, 30% usage player, can he sustain that same level of productivity? Or is there a cap on how good your team can be or how good he can be in that type of role? And that's just a question we're going to get an answer to as time goes on. I think that the thing with Jeremiah, his skill set development is beyond what we've seen from most other players. That's what I'm saying. He did from, it faster from Bearcats over the last 20 years. He did it faster and he's been He's been faster and the curve has been exponential, but it's not normal. Like that's actually right. what he's doing is not the norm. There is not. Give me another example of a guy who made the jump freshman to sophomore year that Jeremiah did from a skill set perspective. I think some of the bigger challenges for Jeremiah is what can Tyler Stewart do with Jeremiah in the off season to make him a bigger, stronger, faster, more explosive athlete. Because what he's what you're saying is we need one of those pictures where where Jeremiah doesn't have a six pack and all of a sudden he has a six pack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and even in the March, and right? he like, might have one already. I'm I don't not know saying exactly. I'm not saying <laughs> Jeremiah Davenport's fit, right? Especially if you're talking to me and you, like me yeah. and you sitting on our podcast, leaning back, eating Cheetos. Drinking, while I'm recording this podcast, and running and running, running, uh, running beer miles. Yeah, we're disgusting. Jeremiah, Jeremiah is not that like, he's clearly a really good athlete, but it can go up a level. He's not explosive at this point. And so can Tyler Stewart do for him what we saw Mike Rayfeld do for Bearcats Trace, in the past? For Trey Scott. Let's see. Can we see what he did for, for Trey, Trey Scott? Scott? Boom. Like bingo. Trey Scott was not a uh, dominating athlete his first three years playing years at the university of Cincinnati. And it went up a level. His explosiveness went up a level his senior season. And can Stewart, can Brandon, can the staff get Jeremiah to take that type of leap? Here's the thing. I have no questions about Jeremiah's work ethic, right? When you make this kind of jump freshman to sophomore year, you are clearly someone who works his ass off to get better. So he's going to do it and he's willing to do it. And he has aspirations for the NBA. Can the staff take him up a level, not just skill set wise, the skills are coming, the skills are developing. He's become a knockdown shooter. Can he physically get to a point where that six, seven frame becomes even more deadly because he's stronger, faster, and more explosive at the rim. If he does those things, we're talking about a legitimate pro prospect who may be in the conversation for leaving after his junior season, which is, well, let's not, let's, that's even scarier. Um, as much as we, we want that though, that's, what's good. But I think you're hitting on a valuable point there. There's a lot, this is where for as much negativity or as much pressure as we're putting on John Brandon, the pressure next year is going to be player development because we know where we're, we know we have to get the lottery tickets to in order from the transfer pool. And we're sitting on such, such few guys that are, that are being able to, so you need to see that that's going to be the, I think that's the key to the off season is the development of Davenport, Hari, 
you know, th- those, those are going to be the two guys, Mason. Those are going to be the guys that we're going to see day in and day out. They're going to get 30 plus minutes a game next year because they're going to have to. Um, so we have to see that kind of improvement from a physique standpoint, from an explosive standpoint, if this team is going to make a leap from being middle of the road, AAC to being a tournament team, which is what we want. That is the definition of success is making the NCAA tournament. That's the bare minimum. It's the bare the minimum. We know that it's the yes. bare minimum because it wasn't good enough for, for our prior coach, right? That like we were, ex- we were expecting more. We were expecting better. So that is, that is the baseline. And next season we're going to have like, I, I'm operating under the premise that everybody who is on the Bearcats right now is coming back. I would say Harvey, we've mentioned it before gone. Um, and if he comes back, fantastic. I mean, that's a huge added bonus. I would just say, right. There's really no signs pointing to him returning to the Bearcats. There's two big signs. The first big sign was the university not saying happy birthday. The second big sign was. But you know, those are, those are the signs that we're, that's all we have to go on. There's, that's all we're getting. We're not getting anything concrete. So we are reading all these different little, little innuendos of, of what we're seeing and all signs point that Zach Harvey's gone. So if that's the case, we also know at this point, Mamadou Diara, who has an extra year of eligibility left is not returning. Otherwise I doubt he would have partaken in senior day activities. And then Gabe is a wild card. Gabe, Gabe, Gabe we have no card. idea. But we also know that technically Chris Vote and Keith Williams both technically have an extra year of eligibility that they're not going to use either. So when we're looking at scholarship players, you're seeing them on the court right now. Yeah. Take away vote. Oh man. Take away vote. Take away Williams. Drink. <laughs> uh, and take away DR. So you're basically left with Davenport. You're left with Mike Adams, Woods, Eason, Mason, and then you're going to have Mike Saunders Jr. That's the extent of our scholarship players. And so now the fun part is that Brandon, when he comes back next season, yes, there are going to be a lot of new players, right? With, with the amount of departures we've had, there's going to be an influx of new blood. You're going to be incorporating Victor Locken into the rotation. Probably you're going to be David, the Julius, David, the Julius will be back as well. And David, the Julius will return. Uh, But you're also going to be bringing in either a combination of freshmen and transfers in the portal. So, Work always for the third straight season. You'll technically have that built-in excuse of lots of new players, new roster. But hey, that's part of college basketball, folks. So we're not going to hear that as an excuse, and it's not going to be acceptable in large part because your foundation of DeJulius, Eason, Davenport, Saunders, and Madsen are back. Sorry, and Micah Adams Woods. All of those guys return, and that is absolutely one hundred percent your core. And now it's Brandon and his staff and Tyler Stewart. It's their job to then grow and develop their skills so that they become a team that we're not just hanging our hat on beating East Carolina and Tulane and Temple. No, we're coming back and we're coming back for the scalps of everybody else in this conference and non-conference because well, we this team, about it. we've talked about it. The, the AAC winning 10 games in the AAC the Bearcats should do blind. Like that should be the easiest accomplishment in the world is winning 10 games in the American athletic conference. So what we did this year, the, the body of work of what we accomplished in the American athletic is we basically did the bare minimum of what you should do. If you have a bad team, because we're not bottom of the barrel American athletic conference program. We don't have bottom of the barrel American athletic conference talent on this current roster. By all means, this was an underperforming team. Right. We, this was a team that I would look back on and say it underperformed given all of, even given all of COVID, all of the, the excuses we went through in there, this team underperformed. It underperformed and, because we couldn't like John Brandon was not able to establish on the fly, a culture that kept the team in a healthy, emotional and mental state. And that's why you saw multiple players take off and you saw a bad fit with Rapalus Ivanowskis, which kind of just set us back from the get go where you're bringing in a guy who just clearly doesn't fit with the rest of the roster that's here. And he's a one and done. So he's clearly going to leave. Um, that's on Brandon. And, and you're right. I don't think he did maximize the roster this season. I don't think John Brandon has maximized the roster over his first two seasons. And I think we're due a season now going into the third year of saying, we need to see you pull more 
out of this. Like you're going to, you need to make the team greater than the sum of its parts, right? Like they need to be greater than the individuals on the roster. I need to see the team function and work together better than what we thought it would be based on the talent level we had. I, I did run through the wins this year. So we finished 10 and 10 and you look at, okay, what were our 10 victories? Lipscomb, Furman, SMU, best win of the, win of the season, Temple, twice, Tulane, twice, East Carolina, UCF, and Tulsa. And we split series with those two teams. It's, it's a weak year. I mean, it, it's a down year. No, no other way to slice it. It's a funky year, roster departures, and, and lots of bad losses, and, and very few good wins. And so there's going to be a, a tremendous amount of pressure going on, on, on Brandon's shoulders heading into next season. And the fun part is that there's so many likable players on this team, and there's so many players I believe in from a talent standpoint to get it done. Like Tari Eason, obscene. Like he, that's a guy, when you're talking about taking freshman to sophomore leaps, would you be surprised if he took a leap that exceeded Jeremiah Davenport's? I wouldn't be surprised at all if he took that leap. Um, I think a lot of what we need to see from Tari Eason is is obviously just improving your game, improving, doing the normal things that you do through the course of of developing as a basketball player. I do think he needs to work on on the mental toughness a little bit. I think that's that's a big part that's lacking is staying locked in to the game for the you know whatever how many minutes he's in if he's playing for 29 minutes being locked in because I think if if he's locked in he's athletic enough that he doesn't need to do reach in fouls. He doesn't need to have, you know, silly over the back blocking fouls. You know, he's, he, those are when you see him making those mental mistakes, he's not locked in and that's, what's keeping him off the court. And I think key for him next year is being on the court. Like he's going to be a player that you need on the court and you can see it by the rotations that we're starting to throw out there. He's in them, right? Tari Eason is, is in, is in the third most used rotation over the last five games. That's, that's what we need to, he's going to have to be in the court or on the court. That's just, that's just key to this team in, in the, in the future seasons coming here. So I think he needs, that's one big part. He needs to, to lock in is his mental toughness and then just keep improving upon, upon his game and the fundamentals of what he does. Yeah. So it's, next year, it's still going to be a young team. It's not, it's not a very experienced team. You have in theory, David DeJulius coming back and being the, the senior leader, probably mixed with a couple of transfers. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not like all hope is lost. You can sort of see the route, but it 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 needs what we need to see happen is are things that haven't necessarily happened during Brandon's first two years. He hasn't taken a group of players and overachieved overachieved with them yet, right? Like that's just not something he has done at this point. And to see the program start trending back to where we expect it to being in tournament conversations, he will need to overachieve even next year. So I'm, I'm just looking at the most frequent lineups over the past five games. Who's the one player who is in every of the top 10 lineups that are used over the last five games. Who's the one player who's in every single one. I mean, it's gotta be Jeremiah or Micah Adams woods. Jeremiah Davenport, uh, Micah Adams Woods is the would be second. He's in eighty percent of those lineups. Uh, surprisingly, uh, Mike Saunders Jr. I think uh, you know I'm doing this off the fly here, but uh, Mike Saunders Jr. is was the third piece of that puzzle at at seventy percent of those. Tari Eason features in about forty percent of the lineups or of the most most frequently used lineups over the past five games. And I think the reason for that is simply because he can't stay on the court. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I mean, and I'm not trying to be, mean. no, just, I know it's not mean. It's, it's been a, tr a challenge for him this season. So I think there's, there's going to be key stay on the court and you're going to, you're going to get better. Yeah. I, I don't want to beat a dead horse. Every guy we listed there, that's coming back, you know, like Micah Adams woods, I sort of expect him to have a linear growth curve, right? It's just going to be every year, maybe a, a small step forward, He's going to be rock solid for you, right? He's going to be a guy who's knocking down 37, maybe 35 to 37% of his threes. He's going to play solid defense. He's a nice secondary ball handler. But he's my new, he's my new go-to foul shot shooter, by the way, too. Oh, not new. Hasn't he always been? I thought we went through the list. Did we have him in there? He I, was I number one. Yeah, he's always been he? number one. He's number okay. one. 
He's always he's been 90%, man. When's the last time we had a 90% free throw shooter? Cold-blooded. Absolutely cold-blooded. Mason Madsen's gone. Mason Madsen has regressed in his free throw shooting. <laughs> uh, we said we needed a bigger sample size. That that did happen. Uh, Jeremiah Davenport, though, is still pretty solid. Davenport's solid, but Micah is clearly the guy you want the ball in his hands in the final minutes, especially when you're getting fouled. Um, yeah, Davenport, what's interesting is next season, they clearly want to start using Tari Eason less at the five. John Brandon has specifically called it out. He doesn't want to see him banging against other centers. He's game too in, athletic game out. for that, man. He's too athletic. But in some ways, like that's going to be a sneaky... If, ja- if Davenport gets bigger, stronger, more athletic, Tari, same thing, that's a sneaky, ridiculous advantage you potentially have offensively when you are able to play those two guys together, especially given how well Tari Eason rebounds the ball. So I, I don't want to see him play a majority of his minutes there, but if you think to, like, my completely over-the-top comparison would be the, the Warriors' quote-unquote death lineup that they played back in 2015-2016 when they moved Draymond Green to center. And they did it in spurts. It wasn't something they went to all game, every game. But Tari Eason is essentially the Draymond Green of this team if he unlocks his, his full potential. And you have this 6'8", lanky, rangy, super athletic, super long, gets to every every rebound guy playing center who can also then go down the court. And if you're putting some big two, 6'10", 250 dude on him, he's taking him off the dribble and getting him in foul trouble or just getting layups. So that's sort of in my mind, like that's a dream scenario is Davenport getting to be a better rebounder, better defender. And if those things happen, that's a sneaky, ridiculous, ridiculously potent potential lineup for the Bearcats. I feel like though the, the height disparity between Tari and Jeremiah is not great, but I, I feel like that's part of the dream scenario for both those players with, with athletic and the growth that they could have is that you can switch that up almost at, at any time. Uh, I think where we have issues with this team is that you have certain players that just don't fit well when they're in any position other than the five, where I think as we move forward next season, we're going to have, depending on what we get out of the transfer portal, a lot of versatility with the positions that we can throw guys into. And I think that is going to open up some more options because I mean, that's like we said before, that's, that's one of the keys to Jeremiah Davenport's game has been to, to gain new tools. It's going to be the key to Tari's too. You're going to have to gain new skills as as time goes on to be able to add different elements to your game. I think that's one of the things from Mason Madsen we've seen, and not that he's done it too many times, but that that dribble out three, you know, that's just something that's gotten him a couple a couple open looks that he's been able to to knock down some shots with, you know. So you, once yeah. you get those new skills, you can use them in the game, and it's just gonna it's just gonna lead to be- bigger better things. Every player needs to figure out a way to channel the confidence that Jeremiah Davenport has. It's not, it's not the obvious confidence of, you know, letting a shot go every time you're open or just showing exuberance on the court and being pumped about playing and, and being loud and energetic. I'm talking about the confidence of, I practiced this move. I practiced taking three dribbles, uh, pump faking at the three-point line, taking two dribbles in and, and, and knocking down a mid-range jump shot. I've practiced taking my man off the dribble and finishing off the glass at the rim over, over a closing center. He practices these things and then uses them in the game. That's the difference. There's so many players who can work on skills and yet they never quite get comfortable enough to use them in a game or they're not, they don't have the confidence to use them in a game. Jeremiah Davenport is practicing this shit and then he goes out there and uses it and executes it and it adds and makes his skill set that much more dangerous and that much more well-rounded. It's awesome. It's admirable. It's exciting. Uh, it's made me a, an absolutely huge um, fan of Jeremiah Davenport. Isn't it a shame we didn't see it coming though? Because like we watched the the game against Memphis last year, where I think it was the first time Brandon Brandon finally got his tee that all the fans were claim, clamoring for because of the way the the refs were just bullying Jaron Cumberland anytime he drove to the to the hoop. But we saw uh, we saw Jeremiah Davenport just like absolutely get stuffed get rocked uh against Memphis, and he just came storming back like and just didn't let it affect him just confidence took the ball straight to the rack at one of the best players in the league and it's like he didn't care about the result he cared more about the fact that i'm going to try it i'm going to do this yeah luckily i think the result was positive for him but it's still it's that that kind of energy that we need to see but is it 
is it sneaky too? Jeremiah Davenport is I don't know. I don't know how great this really is, but I think it's pretty great. There's how many players in NCAA, NCAA basketball? There's like 300 and something teams. You know, there, there's close to 3,000, 3,000, more than, than 3,000 players. Yeah. More than 3,000 players. And Jeremiah Davenport is number 168 in, in two point attempts made. And we know that he doesn't shoot in the same, that three foot range from, uh, uh, you know, that three foot underneath the hoop. That's not where his, his he's a, he's a mid range jumper, right? He's also has a effective field goal rating that's put him into the top 200 in shooters in the country too. He, he's he's quickly becoming a top player in college basketball. I think that that's what's we're, we're, what we're overlooking. <laughs> top player in college basketball. Top a Naismith contender. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, you know what I mean though. Like that, th- those are the types of players that if you get a bunch of those on a team, that's death a dangerous team. Well, I will say. Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of just poking fun at you. I know you don't mean that he's like all American, <laughs> trending toward all American, but I think the, the if you want to get yourself National excited, player of the year. He, if you want the, to talk yourself into the Cincinnati Bearcats, he's taking the Kenyon leap. Yeah, if you want to talk yourself into us going up a level and actually having a chance at making the tournament next year, you're talking yourself into Jeremiah Davenport becoming a freak of nature athletically, getting himself into the best shape of his life, so he's playing 35 minutes a game. And becoming a twenty point per game score while you know getting seven boards and, and four assists a game, like that's I like it. and a block or two. You got to a block in there. <laughs> <laughs> it's an obscene line, and by no means is it a realistic expectation. But the fact that we're we not impossible even, though, it's not impossible, right? It's it's a testament to the growth we saw freshman to sophomore year. He's so much better than he was last year. It is night and day, and he is six seven. Like this is not a guy who's going to struggle to get his shot off. He can't be blocked because he's already so big on the perimeter. It's a huge advantage. Anyway, I'm glad we finally gave Jeremiah his proper due. Well overdue, frankly. And now let's take it into the fact that we we have a chance to still make the tournament this season, Hummer. I have not given up hope. Have you given up hope? How are you feeling? Oh, SMU? Look, I'm, I'm chalking this game up. I know ESPN, they're not giving us a shot at it. Uh, there's the matchup predictors only at us at 20%. Man, find me what the spread is. I'm taking UC all day, every day, and I'm going to take them straight up. I think SMU is going to come back. They're going to come off this game not not having played since February 8th. So we know there's been some COVID issues, which means we know that they've gone through the same stuff that we have, not being able to, what we did, not being able to practice. The only difference is they are not coming back to play Temple. They are not coming back to play Tulane. They're coming back to play the University of Cincinnati Bearcats. Um, you know, so it's going to be, I think, a, it's going to be a different game. It's also, I mean, technically, I guess it's a home game for them uh, being they're in Dallas, right? Yeah, they're yes, they're in Dallas. So it'll technically be a home game for them. But look, we've already beat them on the road once this year. The, the, I think the big difference between this game and last game, obviously, we're missing a few players. But if the players that we have, you know, we have a nice we've had a nice week off. So we're not we're going to be nice and rested. It's not like we're going to have played three games before in in a four game span, four day span coming into this, we're going to be well rested. So this is a game where we could come in and steal a great victory over a a solid SMU team. And then we come back to play. We'll come back to have to probably more likely play Wichita state and Wichita state is good this year. There's no doubt about that. They're, you know, they, they won the one seed. They got, they won the one seed over Houston for the conference. And they did that with a entirely new roster but you're you not know, you're not scared of Wichita State. I'm not scared of Wichita. I'm not no. scared of them. Houston is the team that you're like you're genuinely scared of. They have some freaks of nature on that team. There's a reason why they are top top ten, and they're well coached. They're I mean, well coached. It's, it's a combination of talent and coaching, and they are the only team that should, you know, put some level of fear in you about your ability to beat the team. And they've already beat us by 38 points, right? Like they absolutely demolished us. The one time we played them. Let's stay on SMU though, because that's the one game we know for a fact we're going to get. And it is interesting. Their layoff, you said February 8th. So by the time they play us, we're talking 33, 34 days without playing a competitive basketball game for SMU. They are 11 and four on the season. If you look through their game log this season, they have lost to Houston twice. They also twenty by twenty two too when they did lose to them the last time. They did, they, and that's so the they thing. got they got walloped. Uh, they did get walloped. They lost to Memphis by four, but they also beat Memphis the next game. They, it looks like they played a home and home, and then they lost to Cincinnati. 
that's it. They've lost the three teams this year. Otherwise, they beat everybody. Uh, in Ken Palm, they're at 54th. Although, again, Ken Palm has been so funky this year. It is hard to really place them when they've only played 15 games, haven't played in over a month. What do you we mean they've lost to three different teams? He, they've lost four games, but they've lost to three different teams. Yeah, yeah. three teams. That's what I'm yeah. saying. Didn't I say I know. It made it, you made it sound like games, and I was like, uh, right. If you did the math while I counted and said Houston twice, Cincinnati. Man, I'm slow like that, man. I okay. can't do the math like that. <laughs> Either way, um, the Bearcats have – the thing you have going for us is is the fact that SMU just hasn't played basketball in forever, and you have no idea what you're going to get. I imagine their coach has no idea what to truly expect from these guys. I remember we, we went on a nice, I think, four-game winning streak after coming back from COVID, uh, the pause – but the thing was, I felt like there were guys who looked a bit winded at times. The ability to stay on the court for long periods of time uh, was just simply not there. And so SMU could be dealing with the same challenges. And if so, like you you have to say that's an advantage to the Bearcats. The thing going against us is obviously the fact that when we played SMU the first time, Zach Harvey was a devastating force, uh, put up an awesome performance against them. David DeJulius was still in the lineup and still playing. So there are guys who we were depending on who are no longer on the roster at this point. Mike Saunders Jr., his status is up in the air. John Brandon has made it sound like he expects him to play. But, you know, he's coming off an ankle injury. How much does that hamper his ability to be effective or as effective as he was against Memphis um, a little more than a week ago? Those are some of the big questions. Well, we also don't know if, if, if Saunders not playing against ECU is more of a, hey, Let's take, let's give you an extra week, no work. Let's let's not re-aggravate an injury. Let's have you be healthy coming into the tournament here, because when you're looking at those games, like you brought perfect perfect example. First game back, Temple. You know, if we didn't have the David DeJulius game, our arguably his best game of the season, scoring 26. Just you know, he, he took all the shots. You had Davenport doing Davenport things, and then you had Keith Williams. It was a three-player game, right? Without that, without the DeJulius game, that's not a victory. Everybody else, like you said, looked sluggish. They were slow. We even started Rob Banks. There was a little bit of controversy as why we weren't starting uh, Tari. Uh, we we had a, a suspicion that he was just he was winded, and they wanted to ease him back into playing. You're, I would be hard pressed to think that you're not going to get that with SMU. I would be, it, it would blow my mind if if they come out and every single player is just in tournament shape. Because if you you always hear you want to be rolling into the tournament, you want to be winning going into the tournament. You want to be at peak physical conditioning by the time you get to the tournament because it's going to be hard on you. That's where I think this is going to be tough for SMU. I like the Bearcats' chances in that game. I like it because we're going to be fresh, and because of that, I don't think the depth is going to be as much of an issue. We just we This is going to be where it's really key. Keith Williams needs to keep doing what he's doing and not get into as much foul trouble. I think that's going to be the key for the Bearcats is keeping Keith Williams on the floor, even more so than Tari and everybody else just keep doing what they're doing. SMU before their hiatus was pretty good at turning teams over. And I went back and you pull up the box score from this first game. For one thing, four out of five players in the starting lineup played over 30 minutes. So Brandon really leaned into playing the most athletic, most rangy players in this game. Tari Eason was the only starter to not get 30 minutes and he played 25. Um, in that game, Mike Saunders Jr. only played six minutes, and he had three turnovers in those six minutes. Mason Mad Madsen only played three minutes and had one three for three points. Otherwise, no other stats registered. That was his, that was his first. I think that was his first career career three he hit. It might have been his first game back. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think those are big differences, right? David DeJulius exit stage left. He played 34 minutes. He had 12 assists, nine rebounds, and only two points in that game. But clearly, facility when you rebook revisit this box score, it's amazing we won that game. <laughs> yeah, it really is. But the team shot well. We made 10 of 23 three pointers. Um, and that's honestly, it's so simple at times for the Bearcats. Can we just simply make shots? And we've been so much better at it um, in the second half of the season than we were the first. So that does give us a, a bit more of an edge in terms of being able to rely on, on knocking down some outside shots. Guys like Jeremiah Davenport, Mason Madsen, that helps a lot. It, it really comes down for me knowing that David DeJulius is no longer running the show and that Mike Saunders is 
what do the turnovers look like? Can we still take care of the ball? Are we going to be in that 17, 18, 19 turnover range, or are we able to keep it closer to 11, 12, 13 turnovers? I, I think if that's, if, if we win the game against SMU, I don't think we can turn it over 15 times again. I think we have to be low on the turnovers. We've got to be able to hit some shots. And, um, you know, the fact that we're leaning on, on freshmen in the backcourt and, and Micah Adams woods, it's, it's not as certain, right? Like it's a bit more, there's going to be more variance game to game, especially with Mike Saunders jr. Coming off, um, you know, about a, a week or so without playing basketball. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you're hitting it there. Make shots, limit turnovers and stay out of foul trouble. I'm not saying don't foul. You just got to stay out of foul trouble. Don't get the quick two in the first half. Don't get the, your quick third at the beginning of the, of the second half. You got to stay on the court. If you're looking at that game, Tari Eason, you know, going back to that game, Tari Eason, 25 minutes, 14 points. He had a monster line. He had four blocks. He was incredible on the defensive end that game. He had a couple late in that game, if I remember correctly, that really kind of turned the tide into having this not being as, if I remember correctly, it was a closer game that we kind of, we took it away in the last couple of minutes by just making free throws, hitting some shots. But more importantly, I think Tari Eason did have a, a, a couple really good blocks and takeaways uh, at the end of that game that, that put us into a position to make it a seven point, uh, seven point blowout victory. So, but Keith Williams also three fouls. So we got to keep it. They got to keep them on the court. Everybody has to contribute. I don't think this, this isn't a part of the season where we can have one player just, just take off and, and dominate the game. It's not, this team isn't built like that right now. So I'm, I'm liking our chances. I think we have an opportunity to at least make a, a good run, a, a commendable run, uh, something that actually brings some, some, some extra joy out of what has been a drama filled season. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait for Friday, 3 PM. I'm taking off work a little early uh, work. If you are listening, I will put that into my vacation. <laughs> wink, wink. Uh, so yeah, bring it on. I'm excited. It's March. I would love to see Houston get just, I would just love, this is my dream scenario right here. We beat SMU because we can, we pull off this amazing, crazy comeback from behind win. Unless they come back from behind win against Wichita state. We go into the finals and Houston just sleepwalks it or something, but we wipe the floor with them. I know. I know we pull the ECU to Houston and we, we we're dancing. We're dancing in March. I want to see us dancing in March. I hope you're right. I, I hope I am too, man. <laughs> I think I think the game against SMU should be about a 50-50 coin flip. I think that they are probably the better team on paper, but that with the layoff that they've had and some of the, we'll, we'll say positive momentum the Bearcats have, that it, it's kind of a 50-50 coin flip. And I lean toward Brandon being able to pull this game out, right? Like this is... This is a game. If you're if you're the tournament coach, you say you are and, and and declare yourself to be, which he did. He did. He did. He, he leans on he, it like he, he he planted his flag on that hill and said, "This is where I excel." He says, "I'm a trust tournament me. coach." Trust me, fans. This is where you need to trust me. This is what I time. do. If you're a tournament coach and, and this is kind of where you thrive, this is a game that you should win. What happens after that against Wichita State or Memphis or Houston? That's I'm not going to say you should win those games. He shouldn't necessarily win the conference tournament, but I, I love the fact that I we said dream scenario. It's a dream scenario. And I, I love that you dare to dream. All right. Lay Miz. Uh, I I'm, I'm all about it Hummer and I'm hoping that it can happen. And I think it, it all starts on Friday against SMU at 3 PM. So we will wait and see. Uh, I, I, my gut tells me the Bearcats are going to win this game. My, my gut tells me we're going to win. For now, they've got to do it, Hummer. So we will be talking on Friday, one way or the other. Podcast to come right after that. Hummer, I'd say we table the Harry and Megan talk until a later date. What say you? You know what? I say if you're if you're here with us this long, we got 10 minutes to talk about it. It's hot. Next week, no one's going to care. This is the American <laughs> media, not the British tabloids. They'll be talking about this in England for the rest of their, their days. Uh, okay. Let's do it. Let's let's talk about it for 10 minutes. It's yeah, if you don't I'm, want to hear I'm it, now's the, the time to turn it off. Now's the time to turn off the podcast if you don't care about the Royals. We are done talking about the Bearcats at this exact moment. We are all in on Harry and Meg and what's happening with the crown. So, Hummer, 
I love how you say the crown. <laughs> he, he types it out too. When he sends me a text message, he actually types out the R's to see, so you know, like in your mind, you're reading it. The crown. And honestly, you know, if I was really thinking ahead, we should have had Rob Banks on the podcast. We could have had Rob Banks on to talk about what was happening in England and the chaos that Harry and Meghan are. Do you, think, do you think they'd let him come on here? I don't think they would. To talk about the crown? I highly no, doubt I it. I don't even think that this let him come on, period. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, look, that was spectacular television. And I, Oprah is incredible at, at facilitating high drama and getting authenticity and, and building trust with the people she's interviewing. And I thought, having just watched four seasons of The Crown, I legitimately, I knew all of these shenanigans I knew that the establishment felt dirty. It felt wrong. It felt, you know, corrupt and, and just kind of fucked up in many ways. But their interview exceeded in expectations for me. Like I thought they were more forthcoming than I could have ever imagined. Oh, forthcoming. Uh, and it was interesting though, because like you can tell during the interview that they were also. I think they were being genuine and I think the genuineness comes from like there were, they weren't out to throw everybody under the bus. Like they specifically made reference and saying that it was, you know, the queen and that uh, Prince Philip were just basically absolutely wonderful that, you know, that it wasn't them that any of this came from, you know, that it's not that, but then they, they wouldn't tell us who made the comment. Now for any of you guys who didn't watch, I guess we can, we can hit the highlight reel here. Basically, the biggest the biggest revelation was that she's having a girl. For anybody who cared, I, I was like, "Yeah, that, that's good. That's good. That's good. It's, 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 it's certainly good wasn't stuff. the biggest re revelation on that episode. On the that biggest episode. revelation was someone within the royal family made a comment, and I'm paraphrasing because they they paraphrased it in a sense too, of questioning what skin color, how dark the skin tone would be of of Meghan and Harry's baby, Archie, and Archie. Archie. Archie and how that how the optics of that might look if the baby wasn't and they insinuated wasn't white enough. Uh, an absolutely insane thing to, like that to learn that that's what's coming out of the British royal family that someone said that and then you also kind of you you learn too that through that that Harry is not talking to his father <laughs> or his brother. So, but he wouldn't come out and say who it was. So it left you wondering, okay, I think it's one of those two individuals. Um, and my wife, who is a, a, a prophetic, uh, she watches like all kinds of documentaries. We tried to get her on. She just, she, she won't have any of it. I wanted to start her own Royals podcast. Oh, she'd be good. Her theory though, is that um, it is the father. I think, I think she, she'll correct me if I'm wrong, but. Oh man, she's going with the father. Well, because Prince Charles has always been the where he does not like to be overshadowed when it comes to like being in the being in the limelight being in the in the star that was his issue with princess diana he didn't like it that everybody was liking her more than him and he didn't like on that australian tour that everybody not just the australian tour but a, a lot of the, the first tour that they did uh, as a, a newly newly member of the royal family um that megan merkel was was taken so well by by their by the crown by the kingdom by the empire uh, and so i think that's where my wife is is kind of leaning towards that it's prince charles i get it when i saw that part of the interview and heard those comments live i thought well a that's absolutely abhorrent and sure. b it's abhorrent from coming from anybody but i did i did think to myself look if it was coming from the queen or Philip, A, that would be, it would be a bombshell, but we would also recognize that they are 96 and 100 years old. Like they are ancient. And, and Megan and Harry seem interested, not interested at all in, in destroying or sullying their reputations. And that's a good point. And so it, it was pretty easy to rule them out. The next day they came out via Oprah and said, look, it's, it's neither of them, which really does whittle it down. I mean, the two main actors in this would be William or Charles. Charles is pretty much, uh, he's pretty wide regarded as a horrible person. 
right? Nobody likes Charles. And that's why Charles is so miserable is because nobody likes him. Um, he, nobody ever liked him when he was with Diana. He treated her like absolute shit and, you know, married Cam Camilla and, and nobody's ever going to be happy with that guy or, or want him as the king, which is why I was much more intrigued at the possibility of it being William, because as, as Harry was kind of making it clear, like, I don't have a great relationship with my dad and my dad is my dad. He's a pretty terrible person. I don't like him very much. We're, we're talking occasionally. The William comment, though, was that they're basically estranged. They're they're distanced. They're no longer talking to each other right now. And I, think I read that's interesting, man. That's interesting. Some, someone said that uh, our relationship is space is the new you're dead to me. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I, I just think, I mean, that comment is crazy. Um the I'm comments the crazy. The fact that they they also took away it, it's it's not just that the comments crazy. It's all the actions that led up right to that comment being said because they kind of laid out a timeline without laying out a timeline. We're going to talk about the events that happened. The first one being that uh, they announced or they said that Archie isn't going to be a prince uh, when it's you know it's common. There's it's, no it's, precedent for him not being a prince. Exactly. It is protocol for the grandson of the queen yes to be or a great grand in this case to be the uh, yes it would be grandson because when when queen elizabeth dies king charles will ascend the throne and then archie would be the grandson but of currently the, king. the great he's the and great that, and, grandson and, and, of so their president he should be the he should be it well then they announced that they're going to take away megan's or archie's not going to get security then they announced that megan's not going to get security and, and then actually, you also keep in perspective, though, the institution doesn't like changing things at all. They true. hate deviating from precedent. They they have every celebration they have, be it a wedding or or the pomp and circumstance surrounding that family is always based on tradition and they hate budging off tradition. So then you ask yourself, like, OK, well, that seems like a big deal that you're ending the tradition with Archie, the first the first you know, Prince who is a person of color like that is it's it's madness and it's it's very transparent. It's also. I mean, is it surprising that the, the royal family's racist? I don't know. It's it doesn't feel like it should be surprising, but I do think they missed they're missing a huge opportunity or missed a huge opportunity to modernize and to get with the times and to embrace Meghan and Harry and then acknowledge the fact that, hey, the Commonwealth is comprised of countries that have, you know, predominantly black populations. What are you doing? Instead, you're doing the opposite, shunning her, doing everything you can to make her feel isolated and, and forcing them to do the only thing that, that a person with a sane mind would do, which is bail on the cult, leave it behind and go cash in some big checks from Spotify and Netflix. <laughs> well, <laughs> cash in those checks. Megan Merkel played by Megan Merkel. No, I think the interest, the biggest, the most interesting revelation to me came from. Uh, besides that, then came with like the security details. But then when they started talking, they really they kind of hit a little bit on Diana and everything oh, that yeah. that she had done. And I think a lot of people forget that Diana wasn't like a, a poor woman when she married into the into the royal family. She came from a family of aristocrats. You know, she was upper society of a British society. But she did have the foresight to leave two types of inheritances to William and Harry. One being a basically an annuity that started at age, I think, 31, paying $450,000 a year. Might have been age 21 that they started getting these lump sum payments every year. And then the other one was just a lump sum of about, it ended up being $14 million basically gave them a way out and gave them a way to give the middle finger because the way the Royal family structured from, from at least my point of view and the only, my point of view is literally from watching two seasons of the crown, uh, the crown, the crown. I, I didn't watch season three. I'm, my wife's making me watch it. I couldn't get into the the new actresses, but from all accounts, there's season four, four turns it around season. Three but good they, too. Don't sleep on season they, three. They, the institution does a really good job of, making sure that all of the Royals wealth is tied to the institution. 
and that leaving the institution, you leave the wealth. Uh, that that's a like the because it's an obscene amount of wealth. Like if you look at the payments that the that the British government pays to the institution every year, it's an ins- obscene amount of money. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and they do a really good job of making sure that you don't own any of those palaces. You get to you get to live in said palace. You know, you get an, a, a stipend to to take care of the palace to to live a lifestyle that's befitting of a royal. But if you leave, you lose that. And so by having that outlet, Harry's able to do this and, and for them to be able to come out and say, you know, basically that he sees exactly what the British press is doing as being the same thing they did to his mom. And that he doesn't want Megan to go through that alone. Like hell of a guy. Yeah. I mean, just someone who is clearly looking out. It's basically like, look, I've seen what you guys did to my mom and she died. I, it's a horrific tragedy. And I'm just not going to let it happen to my wife. And she clearly communicated to him that she was having suicidal thoughts and was kind of losing her desire to live. And that's all terrifying stuff. Here's, here's the big difference. My, my wife and I were talking about this and there are a ton of parallels with Megan and Diana in terms of how they were treated, how they were portrayed in the press and why the crown ultimately had the issues they had with them, which is that they came from the outside and we're trending toward becoming bigger than the crown itself. Because again, they have outside life experiences that help them behave like normal human beings and allow them to relate to and speak with regular people in a way that frankly, Charles, William, Harry, the queen herself, none of them have the ability of doing. The biggest difference though, is that they are picking a fight now and have picked a fight with Meghan Merkel, who is not from England. In fact, She's from America and she has the backing of American media, American celebrity, American pop culture behind her. And that's why when people say, is this the end of the crown? Is it jeopardizing the crown? Usually all of that is hype. Usually all of that could be, you know, chalked up to, they might actually like this. Like it makes them more relevant than ever. But I actually think like they are in more danger because basically people in America, like us, like I look at this, like, no, no y'all are crazy. Like Megan and Harry are the same people here for trying to bounce. And you've essentially picked a fight with something bigger and more powerful and more relevant and with more resources than you have. Yeah. It's Oprah is behind them like this. When they also live in LA and LA is a city that, you know, it's known for the people who live there. You know, it's, it is a city where famous people live. Uh, you know, well, that's how were, that was Merkel's understanding. Am I saying her last name, right? Merkel. I think so. Merkel. It doesn't matter. Merkel, Merkel, whatever. Megan. I'll just call her Megan, the Duchess. Um, when she was describing her understanding of the queen, she seemed to think of it like celebrity where it's like, Oh yeah, you just perform that way in front of people behind the scenes. You're normal. And then she, you know, Harry's like, eh, actually, you, you got to curtsy. You're like, you're gonna have to curtsy and curtsy deep. <laughs> I, I was laughing so hard when she told that story. Like he was like, what? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, I, there's a lot of craziness to it. Um, I find it funny though that when I did talk to a while back, I got into an argument with someone who's from the Commonwealth. Yeah, you know, loves his citizenship, loves being a member of the Commonwealth. And we got into a conversation. Was it Piers Morgan? Yeah, Piers Morgan. (laughs) Um, But we were basically talking. It was him in a room. It was actually, it was us. And there were actually three members of the Commonwealth in the room. But the other two gave two shits about anything about the royals. But we started talking the queen and talking about like, oh, monarchies are bad. Like, this is stupid. It's so pointless. He got so defensive, so defensive that he had to throw out like the atrocities that that George Washington committed. And like, we get that George Washington wasn't a good person. No one ever said he was. He's revered in in politics because he, he set precedent of not running. He voluntarily gave up the most powerful position in a, in a country. He voluntarily said, I don't want to be king. Like that's what, that's what makes him special. And I was like, and, and we get into him basically how we left the conversation is, man, you Americans just really don't like Kings. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, no, we, we have a big issue with them. So Hard you know pass. what? 
Hard pass I'm on the happy Kings. to see another American fighting the good fight, dumping the tea all in the proverbial streets. <laughs> so let's uh, we'll do, we'll end it there, Hummer. Um, that's that's as, as good. Of I think analysis we need, as we're we need to have get. one. I think we need to have a full conversation. We need to get either Corey on or B Fox, and we'll we'll set this off this a special. Just no, this oil is conspiracy this theory. is when we need to set the, set up the second podcast. That's basically whatever we want to talk about whenever we want to talk about it. It's just Hummer and Coomer unfiltered. Don't come for the Bearcats talk. Come for you know royal gossip. Come for alien Bitcoin, conspiracy theories. GameStop aliens. Yes, exactly, exactly. I'm down with that. Okay. Let's 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 start. Let's, there's uh, there's a podcast I started listening to because uh, they're they're going to be on a podcast that I do. It's called Edible uh, Edible Encounters, and basically <laughs> the the girls who do this they eat edibles, uh, and then they talk to people about their like consp- like their alien abduction stories. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> it's actually I was like I was a little suspect, and I'm like okay, this is this is pretty good. I like, mean conceptually, the a a plus for name. A plus for building eating edibles into your concept. And then, you know, I, I imagine there's a lot of upside or potential with with speaking to people who encountered aliens. Yeah. So I guess we'll give them a plug on this podcast. <laughs> but yeah, edible encounters is actually a pretty good one. Good stuff. All right, Hummer. Well, let's leave it there and uh talk to you on Friday after the SMU game, sir. Perfect. Cheers, buddy. <laughs>